The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine The Latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the front lines, discuss China calling for peace talks, and reflect on a year of the war. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our team's reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 24th of February, one year since the full-scale invasion. Joining me today are our weekend foreign editor, Venetia Rainey, assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, and our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant. Now, as many of you all know, we already did a separate bonus episode to mark the anniversary, so today's podcast is business as usual, despite the date. If you'd like to watch that reflective episode, yes, they finally got us in front of the cameras, the link will be in the show notes. But back to this episode, where I started by asking Venetia for the latest updates from Ukraine. So on the ground, it's so far been fairly quiet in terms of what's happening on the front line. None of the big bangs that, frankly, we were expecting and preparing for here in the newsroom at 5am. There is a quite good update from the Institute of Study for War about Russia setting the conditions for a false flag operation, possibly in the Chernihiv region and Moldova. We have seen comments from the Kremlin this week accusing Ukraine of threatening to invade, invade Transnistria. That's the breakaway region in Moldova and Moscow threatening a response. We've also seen the Belarusian Ministry of Defense talking about Ukraine building up on its borders. It's possible Russia is looking to expand this war. It's something that we've heard previously to try and drag in other countries. It hasn't happened yet, but it's obviously something to keep a very close eye on. On the ground in Ukraine, Zelensky made a very moving speech this morning to mark one year since the invasion. You are full of his usual defiant statements. We endured. We were not defeated. Ukraine has united the war. We will never rest. But it was also a really emotional speech. He was there handing out Hero of Ukraine awards to troops. He was visiting wounded soldiers in hospital, gave some awards to military chaplains in a monastery. And he was recalling that emotional first war address that our listeners will probably remember. It was 60 second, 67 seconds long. And he said, since then, we woke up early and we haven't slept since. And he, he made a really a comment that's really stuck with me this morning, a very human way of counting the death toll in Ukraine, which runs to the tens of thousands. He said, almost everyone has at least one contact in their phone that will never pick up again. I just thought that was a very moving way of putting that, putting that into, into sort of some, some sort of context for us back here to try and understand that. He said, we became one big army. Someone finds, someone packs, someone brings, but everyone contributes. He was also hosting the Polish Prime Minister, who announced that the first Leopard 2 tanks have now been sent to Ukraine. Didn't say when or how many, but we're starting to see those roll in as Ukrainian troops get training on other tanks elsewhere in Europe. The other big story for us today that was worth flagging is China's peace plan. They put out a 12-point plan and it's full of the usual stuff that you might expect. There should be a ceasefire, there should be peace talks, an end to Western sanctions, there are a few jabs at the US. 
Their first point was about how territorial sovereignty should be respected. And I thought the US security advisor, Jake Sullivan, summed it up quite nicely when he said, you could probably stop at point one and just respect territorial sovereignty. That's all we really need to end this war. Notably, China did not describe Russia as invading. They didn't call it a war. They called it the Ukraine crisis. That's Russia speak. So there's nothing new in there. This is not a concrete plan. China is not going to become you know, a significant mediator in this conflict anytime soon. It's notable that China's abstained from UN votes on this issue. And also today, we're reporting on the fact that it's considering selling drones to Russia that would be similar to Iran's Shahid drones. So it is very much an active player in this conflict. It's not a mediator as it would like to portray itself. And yeah, so that's it from updates for me. Lovely. Thanks, Venetia. Francis, can we turn to you and have a look at the world reaction to the uh, the anniversary today, please? Well, thanks, Dom. And yes, Venetia has already covered what's going on in Ukraine. Some very moving scenes there that we're watching this morning. And it should be said that there are ceremonies taking place across Ukraine, not least in Butcher, of course, a name synonymous with the war and Russian crimes on civilians. More than 400 people were killed in that town alone during a massacre carried out while Russian troops occupied the region last March. But yes, in terms of the broader world reaction today, as you can imagine, uh, we've heard from almost everybody. So I'm not going to be able to summarise it all. But the essence of it all, hopefully. NATO, of course, have de- has declared itself resolute in its support of Ukraine and has said that Russia's efforts to break the resolve of the brave people of Ukraine are failing. They talk as well about war crimes and the need for Russia to immediately end its illegal war. Here in Britain, the King, King Charles III, has said that it's heartening that the UK is doing all it can to support Ukraine after Britain offered to send fighter jets to European allies. Uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is preparing to rally G7 nations to move faster with weaponry and defensive equipment for under-resourced Ukrainian soldiers. I'll come a little bit to some interesting developments with Ben Wallace and the fighter jet space shortly, but as I say, there's a lot of things happening here in the UK. The Prime Minister is going to be uh, hosting a, a reception at Number 10 Downing Street and there's several prominent speeches expected from political leaders here throughout the day. I'll also just mention Boris Johnson as well. He was at the Ukrainian Cathedral here in London this morning and was applauded as he left the service. And so, as I say, unsurprising given, of course, the prominent role that Boris Johnson played in the early uh, hours and days and weeks and months of the conflict. So uh, I imagine we'll hear another statement from him later today as well. So returning to uh, the rest of Europe. So German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has pledged to support for Ukraine for as long as necessary. He also stressed that Putin had failed to achieve any of his goals during the invasion. In France, Paris has lit up the Eiffel Tower in blue and yellow and people are draped in European flags gathering at a vigil there. There will be life after this war because Ukraine will win, the Paris mayor Anne Hidalgo has said in a speech. I think no one will run out of this fierce desire for freedom, for Europe, for democracy that the Ukrainians are showing. In Ukraine itself, Poland, the Polish prime minister, is there. He's uh, marking the anniversary with President Zelensky. And uh, we're expecting, I imagine, there to be a prominent speech from the both of them later on. In Italy, like in Paris, they've lit up the Colosseum in blue and yellow of the Ukrainian flag. And again, I expect we'll hear from Giorgio Maloney, the prime minister there, shortly. Uh, Turning away from Europe, the United States has marked the one-year anniversary of the invasion by announcing new sanctions aimed at undermining Moscow's ability to wage war in Ukraine. Now, these measures will include export controls and tariffs, plus a $2 billion package of additional weaponry to help 
help Kiev as it prepares for this spring offensive that we've spoken about at length now for many weeks. It comes, of course, as the G7, including the US, plans to impose border sanctions, which, of course, I alluded to when I was speaking about Rishi Sunak and his intentions for the G7 earlier on. And I just mentioned Australia as well. Australia have chosen today to announce that it will send drones to Ukrainian forces and impose further sanctions on Russia's people and businesses. So I just mentioned this to underline that whilst, of course, almost all of the attention is on Ukraine or on the United States or what's happening in Europe, the whole world is responding uh, to this uh, today. And in Australia and New Zealand, there are all sorts of statements that are coming out. And so I just wanted to draw attention to that. So lots of commemorations, as I say, Don, but the Ukrainians don't want warm words. They want cold steel. And there continues to be discussions on this. Here in Britain, the ongoing Jets debate has had another development this morning. So Ben Wallace has told Sky News that Britain will not be sending its own Typhoon jets in the short term to Ukraine. And I read a quote from him. Gifting a fighter jet comes with hundreds of people, engineers, pilots, training, electronic warfare. The more complicated the platform, the greater the tail. The West is not going to be putting troops into Ukraine in those scales. The idea that we put typhoons in, we would have to send 200 RAF people and we're not going to do this at this current stage. But, and this is the important bit, he has said that if other countries with Soviet origin aircraft want to supply Ukraine with those aircraft or with other jets, the UK would be willing to help provide air cover for that country to make up for the loss of jets. So there is an attempt to find a solution on this problem of jets and whether it is conceivable to send them. And I think that that is quite significant. I expect that on that conversation to be ongoing uh, into next week. And Denmark have also said that they are open to the idea of sending fighter jets to Ukraine in order to help the war effort. Defence Minister there has said, I won't rule out that at some point it may be necessary to look at the contribution of fighter jets. But of course, the frustration on all of this is that it will take a long, long period of time for the fighter jets to get there. Far longer, I think, than the spring offensive uh, that President Zelensky is said to be planning. So this is all very much long term and inevitably there will be frustrations in Kyiv that it will be... Uh, too little, too late on the fighter jet front. But again, something we'll return to. And just one last remark. I know Venetia's already covered this uh, in detail at the beginning, but I do think it is significant the Chinese intervention today uh, with regard to them offering these 12 points of what they think a future peace could look like. And I do echo what Venetia was saying, that it doesn't really change anything fundamental in what China have said prior to now into what they envisage the uh, end game, as it were, to look like. But I do think it is worthy of comment here that this is China trying to muscle in to the idea of them being the the ones to broker the peace in Ukraine, for them to make their mark on the world stage in a prominent way and to, to be the ones rather than the United States or Britain or an independent party. To, to be the ones to, to try and bring a conclusion to this conflict. And indeed, that's something that we would have to ask in the West as to whether we would want that, whether we would want China to be this prominent role. And I think it is important also to underline the fact that clearly their vision of a peace would be one that contrasts heavily with Ukraine at the current moment. I think that they're the Chinese perspective of one that it would be willing to uh, gr- grant some territory perhaps to Russia. And I'm reading, you know, in terms of these 
these 12 statements. One of them is abandoning the Cold War mentality. And I think that's quite a jibe at the United States there. They also talk about reducing strategic risks and saying that nuclear weapons must not be used. Nuclear proliferation must be prevented and a nuclear crisis avoided. Well, I mean, China are expanding its nuclear arsenal as we speak. So I think it's important to see the Chinese context here in terms of them trying to muscle in in their own benefit as well as perhaps trying to see an end to a conflict which has disturbed economic markets and of course has had quite a divergent effect on on the geopolitical status quo prior to now but I'll I'll stop there Dom. Before we move on to Roland, Francis I was looking at the the plan from China and the first thing it talks about is respecting sovereignty and international borders and all the rest of it. I mean that's that's the only reference to international borders and driving across them with 200,000 people and a load of tanks. I mean, it doesn't go anywhere near any more specifics, and that's really not specific, about the war. I mean, how are you interpreting that? It, it really, I thought, I looked at that document, I thought, well, it's not, it, you know, it doesn't, doesn't say anything. It's just a load of flannel because they said they'd produce something, but it doesn't, it doesn't help in any way. Well, ex- exactly. I mean, I think that the there is no sense, if you read this at all, that there has been a, an affront to the international order. There is very little sense of, of anger in tone as to what Russia have done. Indeed, Russia aren't really talked about at all. Everything is very broad brush. And I think if I were to try and summarise the document, I would say that it is basically saying... Sins have been committed by both sides here. Mistakes have been made by the international community prior to now. We've got to try and fix this crisis. And in order to do so, everybody's going to have to give something. That's the essence of it. And the question I think for the West has to be and the broader international community is, is that good enough? That can it? we go back to the status quo prior to now? Can we try and bury this and move on? Or is what Russia have done in terms of the war crimes and the breaking of the international order so uh, egregious, so dangerous for what plans, what will inevitably be a tumultuous century ahead. That more has to be done to uh, to put the pressure on Russia to change its system, to change how it operates, and perhaps even to see uh, Putin deposed. I mean, these are all big, big questions. I think we know and can deduce a lot from this document what China does not want to see anything like that, that they want to see uh, the world to return to uh, the status quo as soon as possible. Now, part of the reason that, of course, that China wants the this peace plans to be enacted sooner rather than later is that it will benefit from a more stable economic global marketplace. And indeed, that is one of their pillars. They argue that there needs to be a keeping of the industrial and supply chains at the moment. So all parties, and I'm quoting here, should earnestly maintain the existing world economic system and oppose using the world economy as a tool or weapon for political purposes. Joint efforts are needed to mitigate the spillovers of the crisis and prevent it from disrupting international cooperation on energy, finance, food, trade and transportation and undermining the global economic recovery. Well, Of course, they would say that. That's all well and good. It sounds great. But China are one of the chief beneficiaries of the current economic status quo. And the big question that the West has to now ask is, is that advisable when it seems that they are backing Russia on the war? And there's all of these rumours circulating. They may be about to provide Russia with weapons. So it is in their interest. And I want to emphasise that, that we spoke about how this is a, a document that appears quite sort of bland. But in many ways, actually, in that blandness is an acceptance of the status quo. And that is, uh, I think, the big question now is, is that acceptable? So let's have a chat with Roland. So we've done a few of the 
A few of the updates, Roland, but you have written in today's paper and online, not not so much a reflective piece, but you've visited some of the people you've spoken to over the last year. And could you could you talk to us about their story and uh, and what you're thinking about today, please? I mean, I was thinking actually about what President Zelensky said about everyone having someone in their in their contact book who who doesn't answer. I've, def- I've definitely got a couple of those, to be honest. In the past kind of couple of months, weeks, you know, kind of running up to this anniversary, I was kind of thinking about people who I've run into along the way, and you know, sometimes you you meet people and they disappear back into the other, and so on and so forth, and you know. People get displaced, soldiers are redeployed. Some people, one or two people I know for a fact. But anyway, I, I went, I, I did go back to Ukraine. I was back there in January, uh, for most of January. And I'd, I'd, I'd linked up with two people who I'd interviewed before. One of them uh, is a guy called Nikita Ruzhenko, uh, who is a, he's 30 years old. He's a young, he's a councillor, actually, a very young councillor on Kharkiv City Council. Um, and I met him back in May. And the reason I met him back in May, he was an infantryman fighting around Izum when the Russians still held Izum. Um, and, you know, the Ukrainians were on the defensive. And I, I was talking to him partly because I was interested in this question of identity and, and pro-Russian sentiment. He had been a member of a political party that was kind of fairly pro-Russian-ish. And, and he discussed how, you know, the evolution and, and how it feels to be a Russian speaker from East Ukraine. You know, long story short, the day after the invasion, he's down at the recruiting office, becomes a soldier. And I rang him up, you know, he said, you know, how's it going? I'm, I'm coming back to Kharkiv. And he's like, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not serving at the moment. Uh, and it, it turned out he'd lost his eye and he was incredibly cheerful. And, and it was actually really, really nice to see him. But we, we, we met up in Kharkiv and had a, had a lovely talk about, not just about his own experience, about getting wounded and, and what it's like, but also when he's had a lot of time to think, you get a lot of time to think when you're kind of in months of rehabilitation about about the kind of nature of loss about what ukraine has lost over the past 12 months what people have lost what the people who went into this have risked and will never get back i mean he was his story is a bit it's like this it was the you'll remember the offensive to retake his unit the big Kharkiv offensive back in september last year so his unit was all to take part in that and he was driving um in his own vehicle ahead of the the main column it was a it was a night march at some point he got separated um and next thing he remembers he's in hospital and a week has passed and his mates found him basically you know the vehicle had been destroyed somehow he doesn't exactly know how he may have hit a mine may have been something else it may simply have been he lost control of the vehicle either way he's had months and months of surgery to get back to normal and he will he, he will never see through his through his um through his right eye again but one of the i mean one of the one of the things he was absolutely adamant about is how lucky he is and he was told he said said to me look like you know there was this this period in the hospital where the, the doctors didn't think i was going to make it when i first got there they were saying look the next few days are going to be absolutely th- these are the the decisive like next 24 hours is going to decide whether you live or die basically and he had terrible fractures his skull was in pieces there were fractures in his neck and there was brain damage but Somehow he pulled through, and he said, "Look." And he was in this—he was in this hospital ward where, you know, there's guys with much, much worse injuries. You know, he, he talked about, you know, imagine if you're a guy, you wake up in hospital and you don't have any arms anymore. That means you, you can't do anything. Just imagine, imagine waking up without your arms, and then that, that's tough. And then you know, guys are kind of screaming in the middle of the night, and and all of this. And then he said, "Look." And it's personal, this sense of, of, of fortune, because he has a, there's a friend 
who a guy who joined up with him at the same recruiting office on the same day into the same unit about a month after Nikita was injured this guy was in a, a dugout that was hit by a Russian very similar kind of injury kind of trauma to the head shattered skull similar kind of surgery similar kind of damage to the brain but that guy was much more unlucky and he lost his power of speech the speech center in his brain is not working he's been invalided out of the army and he will maybe um, as Nikita explained it he's been told if he works you know very hard very slowly maybe in a couple of years he he will talk again and it was the, the profound thing about this is that the the Ukrainians have an absolute inertia, right? An absolute culture of silence about the the scale of the human losses on the military side. I mean, we, we have this figure of about hundred thousand, hundred and twenty thousand killed and wounded that kind of is bandied around, and that might come from the Americans or I think the head of the Norwegian military said it. And the Ukrainians themselves very seldom say it. the The proportion of killed to wounded within that number is completely opaque. And there's good reasons for the silence. One, of course, is morale. Um, you don't undermine public morale by talking about how many guys have, guys and girls have, have, have suffered in this way. And there's also, you know, information security. That's kind of information that's useful to the Russians. You don't want to say, like, you know, how many men are, you know, have died in Bakhmut or something. But it makes it very, you know, sometimes very difficult to talk about and difficult to quantify and difficult to kind of to get your head around just how much kind of dramatic loss there is and and, and I've, I've often felt there's a kind of wider silence in society and Nikita actually agreed with me so like, I know for a fact like society is not talking about this they're not really ready for it and he said you know sometimes I'm walking down the street and from time to time I see how people see me coming and they just turn away they're like they don't want to look at me but there's a lot of, we've got a war and there's a lot of guys like me now so you know the the task of you know getting getting society to accept what has happened, to look at what has happened, and and to reintegrate people into with these kinds of society is. I mean, in his view, it's going to be a, an enormous task. And I, I could could go on about our, our conversation. Oh, I spoke to him last night, by the way. He's um he's just gone undergone another um, operation that went quite well, but he did unfortunately briefly catch COVID in hospital, which was unpleasant, but he's, he's, he's back on his feet and, and, and quite cheerful right now. He says he's going to go back to his unit to fight once his, his, his recovery is complete. The other guy I, I, I went back to see is Victor Pisanko and any listeners or readers who were following our coverage at the very, very beginning of the war will hopefully remember Victor. He is a, He's a military doctor, remarkably young. I mean, he's in his mid-30s. I think he was 35 when I met him last year, so he must be 36 now. He was, he was running the Zaporizhia Military Hospital at the time, so really at, at the forefront of the this tidal wave of casualties that was coming in at the beginning of the invasion. Um, I tracked him down and found him. He is now in a different hospital. He doesn't want me to tell you exactly where it is. He said you can say it's in Kharkiv region. It is. It's a smaller facility and, and, and similar kind of stuff. So he's still treating guys coming in off the battlefield it's still predominantly the these blast wounds we've, we've spoken a lot about you know how this is an artillery war um and that that remains the case you know it'll be bits of shrapnel thrown into bodies but also you know the the trauma the the shock wave which can do a whole myriad of gruesome things to the human body but victor was um it was remarkable to see him i mean he's I kind of didn't recognize him because he's grown his beard out and he's now got this enormous big ginger beard but he's still got this kind of he's a remarkably charismatic man and a remarkably 
he's got this amazing focus and you you can see him kind of absolutely laser focused on on his patients but also on his kind of vision for his for his hospital and he's a kind of person who attracts like a quite a loyal team of um of of fellow doctors and surgeons and he's brought guys from and, and women from Zaporizhia who've, who've come to help him in his, his new place in Kharkiv region he was also talking about the psychological impact of this so you know the, the, there's one thing soldiers come in um and the surgeon's job is to basically get the shrapnel out of them patch them up first kind of emergency surgery stabilize them enough if they're really bad to get them further west to like the really specialist hospitals over in Dnipro or, or Kiev or somewhere like that. But for a lot of the guys who are coming in, say you've been, um, say you've been in combat in Bakhmut and a Russian tank shell hit your position and, uh, you know, you've taken shrapnel to your side, you can't hear, you've been knocked unconscious. It's pretty unpleasant, but you're probably going to be expected to go back into combat pretty quick. So people are brought out, out from the front patched up and they've got a few you know a few weeks to get better and he was absolutely adamant about the importance of making that hospital he was really a place for the soldiers for the men where they can recover where they can feel like normal guys and part of that was because this is now a citizen army he said to me look i'm a soldier i'm also a doctor so you know i'm very familiar with death it's not something new to me these guys were civilians just a, you know a few weeks a couple of months ago they're not used to this. They're not ready for this. And they've just very nearly been killed. And they probably, most of them have seen people be killed next to them at the same time they they were injured. And they've got to get over that and get get back into combat. Now, creating a nice kind of safe space where you can recover for a few weeks and you're feeling kind of robust enough to get back is one thing. But, you know, I asked about PTSD. He said, well, that comes later. That comes six months down the line. And by the way, after this war, there's going to be another war. And what he meant was dealing with that, um, you know, the long-term uh, kind of traumas and things. Anyway, it was, it was very, um, very rewarding to go back and, and, and speak to them. There's a lot more I could say. I think they're both remarkable men who've done an awful lot. I'd just like to add on one thing. I mean, uh, Victor had kind of two things that he wanted to say. Well, he, he wanted to say that he wants Ukraine's allies to think about taking more wounded for long-term rehabilitation so you know people who you know need to learn to walk or, or get prosthetics or something like that he said his basic message was look you know if, if the west can send tanks they can take people to who really need this kind of high level long-term care as well um so that was one appeal he was he was keen to get out there the other thing was that you know one of the fellow surgeons there who was a, a professor of surgery from Zaporizhia University, actually, she asked me to say, "Look, we they could really do that in that place, that hospital with kind of mobile X-ray units, things that will help them find travel more quickly for treating stuff like that." She was, she was begging me to kind of to mention this to readers, to mention it out there in case there's anybody out there who you know is able to donate some of that kind of modern equipment, uh, of which there is unfortunately still a shortage. I'll leave it there. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff, and I. I recognise a lot of what you're saying there about how society responds to to injured people. And as Anna, thank you, Anna, one of our one of our terrific listeners, has messaged, uh, and she's quite right. You know, it, it's people don't know how to react to wounds, mostly physical. Mental will will come. It's not the appearance of those wounds themselves. I, I completely recognise that comment from our experience here in the UK through the Iraq and Afghanistan 
years and, and before that i mean the the various people who were wounded through all the all the punch ups we decided to get in, involved in in many ways it was it was brought to a head through iraq and afghanistan because there were so many and society had to sort of decide what it how it wanted to react to to these people the people that came back from northern ireland and bosnia and god knows where else maimed and, and injured they were they were thankfully so few and spread out over a long time that society hadn't hadn't been faced with these uh, with these issues before so it is it is a question of of accepting and uh, and understanding the humanity and how how lucky we all are and i've no doubt ukrainian society will, will get there very very quickly because we we went through that looking glass and it was uh i think we came out the better the better for it but it is it is very interesting you you say that the people you're speaking to knew that the the battle of the mind is to come i recognize that completely and uh, you know i know friends who are you know friends and colleagues around the media environment who who are working hard uh working themselves too hard almost in order to not have the spare capacity to allow their mind to drift east and think about that you know that is that is a a tactic that is a, a workable solution but it's short term there will be a bill to pay and we need to be aware of that and and look out for each other i just want to rain when you are you know, looking back on the on the year your year of reporting there you've done you've done loads of trips there and many many more trips you know, since uh, well since uh 2014 and and others i mean have you seen a a response through society that an understanding that there there is there's going to be this bill to pay. And do you, do you think that the the resilience we've seen from Ukrainian society in in turning up to this fight will augur well for the for the, the the longer need, the greater need to come from on the mental challenges, or, or, or have they not have they not had the head start? Is what I'm saying. Are they are they starting now? Do you think? It's it's such a tricky question. I don't think people know it themselves. I think on the whole, the short answer is. Yes, you know, I mean, Ukrainian society has shown absolutely immense and remarkable resilience and an almost universal willingness to kind of self-sacrifice and, you know, and take this on. And that does all go well for, for dealing with this. In terms of dealing with, you know, facing up to, to this kind of long-term stuff, I mean, it's... I, I was putting this to a few people I met actually because I was I was trying to get my head around you know everything I've seen over the past year myself and 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 I'm you know I'm an outsider I'm a journalist I'm I'm not there permanently um, and I remember I was in Kiev last month I, I had a coffee with a very senior uh, Ukrainian diplomat who I hadn't seen since since just before the war actually and the war began he was just it was just impossible. You know, it's flat out busy. We had a coffee in the foreign ministry in Kiev, and he was—I mean, he changed. In he was still the same man, but the the fatigue in his eyes, the kind of the lines, the kind of harsh drawnness of him, and he knew he was exhausted. And he, you know, he'd basically not slept. He said he was basically he kept he kept going by. Kind of waking up in the morning and reminding himself about the guys in the trenches and knowing that he's got it easy. But I was talking to him about this, you know, about how how people deal with this this building up trauma. And so he said, "Look, I, I cannot think about it. I, I cannot allow myself to even begin to think about Butcher, about Erpin, about about you know 
Mariupol, about the dead, about the raped, about all of these atrocities, because the moment I do that, I am just going to break down. And he was, he was very conscious that he was kicking it down the road. He was kicking it down the road until he can rest. And that probably means until the end of the war, until victory. He doesn't know when that will be. Um, which kind of suggested to me that is going to be a, a really horrific moment for you know for, for lots of people when they can finally let go and, and look at it. I, I did that to Nikita and, and he was like, well, I kind of see that, but but I'm not sure a lot of people are kind of saying, oh, I I, I can't handle it, I'll deal with it later. He 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 kind of was a little bit more, I don't know pessimistic is a word, he says people are just so exhausted they don't want to think about it at all. Um, and because because society is tired of the war and 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 there are kind of signs of fatigue emerging and he talked about you know you know there are little bits of tension you see in ukrainian society kind of you know there's tension between you know men who've ser- who've joined up and those who haven't a bit of resentment there there's tension between east and west you know nikita was saying you know there's around kharkiv you know people go out west and they come back um you know, and 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 there is this sense that people out—I don't know how true it is—and just kind of, you know, this this is these are the kind of words going around that people out there are saying, "Oh, it's your war, your war out in the east." Whether or not that's true, you know, this is—you know—he he, he felt like society is tired, and you know, you start looking for someone to blame when you're tired, and he felt like you know that reintegration and the fallout is. You know, in in one way or another, going to be quite dramatic. And the other thing that he was talking about was about even those who are not dead, even even those who aren't, you know, physically wounded. Because I, I think you're right. I think Ukrainian society will get to the point where, you know, you're not you understand how to deal with somebody who's got a a, a, a grievous, obvious wound and so on. But he was saying, you know, the real thing is everybody who fought is going to come back a changed man. And he, he, he was saying, look, personally. You know, I, I notice myself, I have these sudden bursts of aggression, which I didn't have before. I could control it. But like, you know, it, it, this is a society that is just fundamentally traumatized by, by what's happened for the past 12 months. I and mean, I think I think what the Ukrainians have done is absolutely phenomenal. But, you know, there, there's no point in trying to trying to varnish it. The the fallout of of what's happened just over these you know, this past 12 months is already going to be, you know, it, it's with us for generations. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I don't think there's any disputing that. And um, I think to echo one of the campaigns going around UK at the moment, uh, which we will, we we embody, I think, here on the on the pod, uh, it's okay not to be okay every now and again. And we'll always be a, a safe space for our friends to come and come and talk and chat and work these things through. Um yeah, we will, of course, return to this. Just want to nip back to Francis to finish off a few thoughts and come back to to you, Roland, and me to, to tie up the final thoughts. But uh, over to Francis, please. Just one final update from me, though, which is I think if I were to take the temperature of Western politicians and diplomats at the moment, I think it'd be quite neatly summed up by a scene that's gone viral this morning of a Latvian MP quoting the Ukrainian Snake Island defenders during a UN security meeting where he was speaking to Moscow delegates who'd been invited. So 
Richard Coles said that the presence of Russians during the European Security Council in Vienna was the white elephant in the room and that it was a disgrace that they were allowed to attend the gathering. And I'll quote in full, it's a disgrace that this delegation is here, particularly the delegation that consists of members who are sanctioned individuals who voted to annex an independent country's territories. I will convey a message to the Russian delegation sitting in this room and I will quote the Ukrainian border guards. Russian warship, go fuck yourself. Absolutely. Right, coming to an end now. Roland, would you like to give your final thoughts and then we'll just start start wrapping up? Yeah, I mean, on the anniversary thing, I think I I was approaching this like as many journalists do about anniversaries. We tend to think that they are journalists tend to resent anniversaries because they're not news in themselves and in this particular one i was kind of it's a bit i was a bit leery with the build-up to, to to everything we've seen and and the marking of it only me and you were talking about the newsroom earlier don you know it's it's it doesn't make a difference to the guys you know the guys in the trenches in back and it doesn't make you know the the, the war's carrying on right it, it's it's a okay it's a one year it's a mark and i think you know, I, I can see a lot of kind of propaganda value, if you like, in the kind of the enormous kind of, you know, the ceremony in Kiev and Zelensky's comments and how Downing Street has had a minute silence and, and things like this. You know, it's about maintaining morale. I kind of, I, I understand why governments are doing that, but I was a bit surprised. I, I mean, I found it a bit more emotional than I thought I would. I found it difficult to sleep last night, um, kind of, you know, running through waking up, um, and civil of the Donetsk that morning and um you know uh looking back through the text messages and you know working out what we did and realizing i'd forgotten things and just remembering how utterly frightening the whole thing was um and how we had no idea uh what was going on and it, it's just it's almost it's almost impossible to kind of Put yourself back there, knowing what you know now, and, and and suspend your disbelief, and 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 remember what it's like. And I'll, I'll go back to Nikita actually. And, and one thing, you know, he said. I, mean, I asked him, like, look, when you went down to the, you know, you went down to the recruiting office the next day, and you joined up. I mean, did you realize something like this could happen? Yeah, maybe. He was like, yeah, of course I did. I mean, in fact, you know, we were we were going up against the second strongest army in the world. In fact, a lot of us went there basically, you know. It was defend basically when they're ready to die. They thought they were going up against an unstoppable super army, which you know later turned out not to be. I have no idea where we're. You know, we we may well be here again this time next year talking about the same stuff. Uh, God forbid. But I'm just <laughs> it's remarkable. I'm still trying to get it through my head how far how far we've come and how much the world has changed. And that'll be a job for historians to, to, to unpack over the next few decades, I think. I'll, I'll leave it there, though I'm beginning to ramble. Sure. Well, I'm going to wrap up here with a few thoughts and hand over to, to Francis for the final uh, the final bit. Yeah, I mean, hey, we're in this fight now, folks. We're all friends. Got a long way to go. Look to your left and right. Help the people next to you. Let's keep going. Look after each other. Random acts of kindness and all the rest of it. You know, we're we're here. You know, you you can't choose. I'm afraid anyone who's brilliantly and generously given us our time, given us their time to to listen to us, and you're still here. And um, the vast majority of you, we get a couple of headbangers every now and again, but the vast majority of you are are uh, of of one mind, I think. And 
so we we're all we're all in it and uh, and let's help each other uh, got a long 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 way to go and we need to look out for each other you need to look after yourself find some time chat to people it's okay not to be okay but uh, this war is not going anywhere anytime soon and neither are we and with that i will leave it to francis to give the final thoughts well, thank you, Dom. And I echo that. And I echo Roland's remarks earlier. I think historians will be talking about this for a very, very long time. And in that spirit, I thought I'd end this episode today with an abridged version of our leader reflecting on the past year. So I'll read that now. As Russian T-64 battle tanks rumbled across Ukraine's border one year ago, Vladimir Putin said, Whoever would try to stop us and further create threats to our country, to our people, should know that Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history. We are ready for any outcome. The outcome he was not ready for, however, and neither were many others, was that 12 months later, the Russian army would be bogged down in the east of Ukraine, having lost thousands of men and a substantial amount of equipment. It was expected that the Kremlin's mighty battle machine would be in Kyiv within days, toppling the government of Vladimir Zelensky and installing a pro-Moscow puppet regime. Yet the attempt to take the Ukrainian capital floundered and the Russians were forced to withdraw, leaving behind the evidence of atrocities that have been the grisly hallmark of its soldiers down the centuries. What Putin still calls a special military operation was refocused to carve out for Russia the eastern provinces that had been locked in civil war since 2014. The Russian leader's miscalculations have been legion. Not only did he fatally underestimate Ukraine's determination to defend its homeland, but he misjudged the West's willingness to support them in its endeavour. As millions of mothers and children fled west from Ukraine, homes were opened across Europe to accommodate the refugees, while the men and younger women stayed behind to fight. Above all, having stalled Russia's initial thrust, Kyiv needed weapons, and Britain led the way in ensuring it got them. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, galvanised Western support at a time when it looked likely to weaken. President Macron of France was pursuing a fruitless strategy of engagement with Moscow, while the Germans, heavily reliant on Russian energy, were reluctant to get involved. Now they are ready to supply Ukraine with more weapons, but need to get on with it, and crucially are weaning themselves off the Kremlin's oil and gas. By next winter, Russian energy markets in the West will have all but dried up, forcing it to sell its output at a discount to countries like China and India still willing to buy it. Putin's failure to achieve a swift win has geopolitical consequences that have yet to become fully apparent. Since NATO has pulled together, Russia has had to seek out its own alliances. Ominously, China reaffirmed its tacit support with a visit to Moscow by Wang Yi, a senior diplomat, raising speculation that Beijing might supply Russia with weapons, dangerously destabilising the global power balance. More optimistically, China might reign in Russia by making clear that the reckless rhetoric about nuclear war needs to end. On his visit to Kyiv earlier this week, Joe Biden said the world was backing Ukraine. But sadly, that is not the case. India and other non-aligned countries are pursuing a policy of strategic ambivalence. Russian naval exercises are currently underway off the coast of South Africa. Many national leaders believe Ukraine cannot win. This is the key question. Is a military victory in fact possible unless NATO commits aircraft and risks a direct confrontation with Russia? 
Biden says America will support Ukraine for as long as it takes. But he won't be in the White House forever. And there is a growing Republican backlash against continuing US military provision. A major demonstration is taking place in Berlin this weekend in protest at Germany's agreement to help rearm Ukraine with its Leopard 2 tanks. France is ostensibly supporting of Kyiv and yet has less military help than most. President Macron's position remains hard to decipher as he tries to keep open a dialogue with Putin. The true plaudits must, however, go to the Ukrainian people who have to live with this nightmare and are braced for far worse to come as Russia launches a counteroffensive. Who can tell where we will be a year from now? But one thing is clear. Putin cannot be allowed to win. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.